This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Yesterday, I had the good fortune and the opportunity to interview William Shatner. If there's a handful of words that William Shatner is probably best known for, it's space, the final frontier. Now, if you think about it, I think part of the reason those few words resonated so much with television audiences in the 60s and then again in the 80s is because it's true. Uh, We have explored a lot of the earth, right? And uh, you don't have that same sort of opportunity to discover something new on this planet, but you do in space. And over the last year and a half or so, we have been very lucky to have our very own space Sherpa planted firmly on the ground. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and what they call an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a podcaster uh, for WABCradio.com, where you can hear the Dr. Sky experience, which is just terrific. Steve, it is always a great treat to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the air. Well, good morning, Frank, and Happy New Year to you and the listeners. Hard to believe it's already 2023 as we approach the 11th day of January. Good to be with you. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Hey, looking back on uh, 2022, and I'm always more interested in looking ahead, but I think it's important to look at what a groundbreaking year 2022 was. It was a, a pretty big year for space missions. Give us a little bit of a recap, if you can, about what the highlights in terms of space travel were in 2022. Well, it's a great question, and here we go. In 2022, there were 186 space launches around the globe. 60 missions were from SpaceX, and interestingly enough, 64 launches from China. And though that doesn't add up to the number I said before, there's been a lot of other nations that have had rocket launches, private companies that have also joined the you know, big foray into the low-Earth orbit and beyond. And, of course, the big highlights, I think, has to go if we were going to award a prize here on the other side of midnight – I think Frank would probably give the award naturally to the SpaceX. Don't forget about Jeff Bezos. Blue Origin also in the space tourism area is very strong. But if you think about what's really happening in this reflection of looking back into 2022, it is so amazing what SpaceX has accomplished and all the things that Elon Musk is trying to do. You know, obviously the center of a lot of controversy from how Tesla is going to move forward and improve their stock share how they're going to, of course, meet their deadlines with the electric cars, the acquisition of Twitter. So if you look at that, I mean, he's really done a yeoman job, I think, by many people's estimations. But in my personal opinion, if I could say to Elon, I'd say, hey, Elon, why don't you pick one of those things and try to concentrate on it more? But I would kind of opt for space, don't you think? Well, I mean, I would, but I would think that um, he there's a lot more money to be made in the short term oh, uh, with right. respect to running Tesla and maybe a lot more influence to be had on sure. this planet uh, with uh, with running Twitter. But, uh, but we'll see. Look, uh, clearly Elon Musk is doing okay. I don't know that he needs advice from us. Uh, in terms of uh, how he should be spending his time and uh, where his productivity should be centered. Um, what are we in store for this year? What's kind of the next thing that we can be looking forward to and the thing after that? What do the next 12 months look like space-wise for us? Well, we have some very interesting launches. And again, we're going to center the most of this conversation on talking about what uh, Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX. We're looking to see the first iteration of this most massive rocket that he's developing for his Starship. And that particular rocket is even larger and more powerful than what he has with the big heavy lift rocket that we've seen launched and very successful. So we're going to see so many different individual missions. NASA has a whole bunch of missions, too, that they're looking to accomplish. And if we look at the exploration of the solar system, there's going to be an interesting mission that hopefully will get off the ground this particular year in 2023. That is the Psyche Asteroid Rendezvous Mission, Why is that so important? It's because this particular asteroid, Psyche, is thought not to just be a rock, you know, rubble pile 
But Frank, it's thought to actually be maybe the core of a previous planetary object or one that never made it. So it's simply, it's mostly made of metallic material like nickel iron. And that will be a very interesting probe and a very interesting mission as we move into this new year. But there's going to be, I think if we look at 2023, and let's keep our fingers crossed, it's probably also going to be the year of lunar rovers. Now, we're not talking about these big, massive rovers like the ones that maybe take seven or so astronauts to the surface of the moon. That's coming. But there's a lot of these little objects that we describe in space. We talk about these little tiny satellites called CubeSats, maybe small as or smaller than a microwave oven. Some of them are a little larger than that, that will actually be exploring the surface of the moon, both from the NASA side, the privatized area of space and companies that are trying to do that. And there's going to be a lot of competition to get down to the surface of the moon and also to explore, maybe even scoop up some material like water ice on the surface of the moon. Most of this is scheduled to be kind of a headway, you know, leading the way for astronauts to look at the area that they're probably going to land humans on. And that is the Aiken Basin in the southern pole of the moon. Very fascinating. So much more to talk about. And we could go into more detail. But, of course, that's pretty much a simple highlight of uh, 2023. It's exciting. It, obviously, we've covered at length the escalating tensions between the United States and Russia over the last 11 months and what that has meant or what, will, what it might mean, I should say, for the future of U.S.-Russian uh, cooperation for things like the uh, International Space Station. China seems to be a country that has a lot of spacefaring ambitions, and it's also a country where tensions seem to be worsening with the United States. Uh, yes. You mentioned the private sector space flights, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, mm -hmm. Richard Branson. But in terms of governmental space flights and the prospects of international cooperation, who, if anyone, is the United States uh, poised to partner with in terms of space exploration, and what countries might be partnering with one another on that front? Well, it's interesting, Frank. If you look at now the most populated nation on the Earth, it's not China, it's India. Mm. We're probably going to be working very closely with them, not only on the propulsion side, but also on the individual space you know, projects, as I mentioned before. Like the Psyche mission, it may not be 100% a NASA mission. European Space Agency is very big, and that's a conglomerate of countries over in Europe, naturally, that are also there to you know, explore the entire inner solar system and beyond. So we have a lot of space missions. But again, going back to something I find fascinating, there's a country called Astrobiotics, and they're going to be responsible for a little mission called a Peregrine One Lander. And this is hopefully going to get off in 2023. It may even scoop up some material from the surface of the moon, maybe bring it back to Earth. We're not too sure on that. But a lot of these countries, uh, obviously out there, that have never had an opportunity to get to space just the other day, if not, what, 24 hours ago or even this previous uh, maybe hours ago, it's been reported by many of the news sources around the world, Virgin Orbit had their first actual launch from the U.K. in the spaceport called Cornwall. So we see the United Kingdom getting very heavily into this. And this particular mission was known as what we call Start Me Up, taking after the 1981 Rolling Stones song mm. as their mission, as the main mission you know, theme, Start Me Up. But that's even more interesting because what they're doing, Virgin Galactic and the whole Virgin team uh, with Branson, Richard Branson, is that they have this amazing 747, of course, many of the airplanes that he flew in the Virgin uh, aircraft world commercially, this one happens to be a very specialized 747 known as the Cosmic Girl. And what they did try to launch, they had almost great success, and that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. They had a 70-foot-long rocket called Launcher 1. And what happened to this particular rocket, it actually gets deployed off, let's say, the fuselage of the 747. So in other words, this aircraft takes off, and there were a heck of a lot of people in the U.K., I understand, that got tickets to watch this. In literally in cold weather, like 40-some degrees with a stiff wind, and people saw it go through the clouds, but they never saw the rocket launch. But apparently the first and second stages launched fine, but they had a problem, I guess, after that, in which they lost nine small satellites from different independent, you know, independent paying you know, clients. But the point is, we're answer, to answer your question, going back, to even, even the U.K. is getting heavily involved, and we as a country, of course, are working with them, and you know, space is the place. And as you said, if your interview with uh, William Shatner, you bet it's, uh, well, a final frontier, mm -hmm. we call it. But 
it's still very positive for 2023. I'm excited. Me too. If people are uh, just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, we are going to take uh, as many of your questions as we can throughout the hour. We have a special number for today as we're working to fix our uh, conventional number. The phone number is 833-969-4447. So that's 833-969-4447. Uh, Steve, you alluded to that uh, Virgin yes. Orbit satellite launch. I had read that that would have made the U.K. the first European country to get satellites into space from its own soil. And even though that failed, I was curious. I didn't realize that. Where do most uh, satellites that are European in origin, where do most of them launch from? Very interesting question. And we go back to the, the launch that about Christmas Day last year of the amazing James Webb Telescope. So a lot of these countries are utilizing French Guiana as a launch location. Mm. And the good reason is, as you get closer to the equator, the rotation of the Earth is at its fastest or nearly at its fastest. So you would launch to the east as the Earth is turning west to east to get that extra oomph in this, in, into getting your payload into space, I should say. So in those areas, you're seeing a lot of people launch from there. India has some launch you know, platforms set up, also down into the Indian Ocean. So you're seeing these things pop up all over the place, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll even have a floating platform off the coast of New York City someday or <laughs> something like that. But this is becoming very common and very uh, commonplace to all nations that have tech- high technology and a spirit to go to space. One of the things that is the bane of a lot of radio general managers' existence has historically been solar flares because it causes all sorts of wacky things to happen with uh, radio signals. And I understand that we're in store for some major activity on the sun, including potentially some solar flares. What's happening in that respect? Well, Frank, we've kind of hit the Super Bowl early here before the Super Bowl <laughs> looks uh, you know, on ground here. This is going to be a big deal. Just this past week, we've had the following things happen. Solar Cycle 25, in case people are just tuning in and wondering, every 11 and a half years or so, or even it's a bigger cycle than that, but we were, we were learned and, and taught in school that some 11, 12 years, the sun reaches a peak and it goes and it waxes and wanes. Well, we're moving up higher into Solar Cycle 25. Astronomers are saying that it may peak earlier and may be higher than what the earlier predictions was for a kind of a mild to moderate one. But here we go. Just hours ago, we had another series of these amazing flares on the sun. A sunspot group right now known as AR-3184 pumped out on the level of X-flares, which is very powerful, a 1.9 class X-flare. It's not headed in our direction, but you have a sunspot right now. There's actually six major sunspot groups right now, Frank. So obviously in the dark of night, people can't look at it. But we always remind people to go to this website, spaceweather.com. If you go there while you're listening to the show, on the left side of the page, there's a live image of the sun. And I'm not exaggerating and never would. There's six major sunspot chains on the disk of the sun right now. What does that also mean? We've also had another powerful X-flare from that group that's right now near the center of the sun when it wasn't. It was an X1.2 flare. So now what I'm saying That sunspot group, as it moves from left to the right across the sun, once it gets, and it's pretty close to the center of the sun, if we happen to have another flare of an X level, and it does pump out enough energy from this, this would be like the shotgun blast if you're directly in the line of sight. Now, not to alarm people, we don't know if that could be a massive CME. The big difference is this. When you see a solar flare happen on the sun, it's traveling at the speed of light. It occurs lower in the atmosphere, and you put that word atmosphere in quotes because not a breathable atmosphere, but an incredible 12,000-degree surface called the photosphere. That particular light event hits hits the Earth in eight minutes. It takes eight and a half minutes for light to get from the sun to the Earth. That's bad enough. But if what happens after that, as it cascades up through the solar atmosphere, we call the sun's atmosphere the corona, not a breathable atmosphere, But those are what's called coronal mass ejections. They take upwards of 17 or 18 hours to hit the Earth. They're the ones more likely that are, and I want to split hairs on it, but flares are dangerous once they interact with the magnetic field of the Earth. But CMAs could be even more catastrophic. We go back to 1859 to the Big Daddy, the big classic one, the one that happened in September of 1859 called the Carrington event. 
we think, they don't know for sure, that on the X scale, this particular X flare might have been as high as X40, which is totally unbelievable. Imagine it, you know, and it's, it's not 40 times more powerful than an X1. But that particular time in history, we had no Internet, obviously. So the world's Internet was telegraph lines. And around the world, and even here in the United States, it was documented that hours later, after that CMA hit the earth in 1859, many telephone cables and wires and telegraph lines along railroad tracks actually caught fire. And that's no exaggeration. That's incredible to even think that something like that could happen. It did, and it's still considered to be one of the major events, probably not in all history, but let's pray that we don't have one coming from that particular sunspot group the one I just described, that's really right near the center of the disk of the sun. You um, you alluded to that coronal mass ejection from 1859. Mm-hmm. The last time it took us this long to elect a Speaker of the House, it was 1859, <laughs> interestingly enough. Well, so what is the likelihood of a major coronal mass ejection or CME along the lines of what we saw in 1859? Is it something um, that's a one out of a hundred shot, one out of a thousand? Is it more likely than not? Well, how do you handicap the likelihood of something like that happening? The simple answer is it's more likely than not. And we've had experiences too. In In 1921, there was the great New York Railroad flare and CME that affected transportation in New York and the whole environs, you know, rolling railroad tracks along the northeastern United States. In 1989, we had an incredible CME that actually hit the northern part, actually the focus of that particular CME, as it hit the magnetic field of the Earth, centered itself over Quebec and Canada. And the problematic thing is, if you have deep soil, the Earth can basically absorb a lot of that energy. But in that particular area, including the New York area, that whole area where igneous rock and granite is pretty much the ground level, That material doesn't penetrate the Earth from the CME as easily, so guess what happens? It gets reflected back, and where does it go and saturate? It saturates into the power lines, and that's what happened there. It blew out, I don't know, I'm not making that up, that it happened maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 million people were out without power because of the density of the ground in which the CME hit. It wasn't like hitting into soft soil where the CME, a lot of that energy would have been absorbed. But there's something else that just happened, too, and this is kind of detailed, and I, ho- I hope I can explain it in a simple way. I'll do my best. We just had experienced something with this solar flare that's unusual. It's called a magnetic crochet. Now, what the heck is that? You sit there and you, you know, make, make, make a bib or a you know, little tiny shirt for a little child. No, there's a different kind of crochet. What this magnetic crochet is, there was an actual spike in the solar flare that hit the Earth in which it actually affected the Earth's magnetic field and actually affected it for maybe a short period of time. It could have been minutes. It could have been a little bit longer. But astrophysicists and scientists, they they study the sun, who studied the sun, noticed that this magnetic crochet jolted the Earth's magnetic field, which is incredible because you see how sensitive and, and how dependent we are on peace and tranquility from space. But the sun, to answer the question in finality, it's more than likely that we will have another one of these, but now the problem is very simple. The problematic thing here is we're such, what, a dependent world on satellites, cell phones, and everything else, and what happens in the electromagnetic pulse that we would get in now, in modern-day times? I don't want to be the prophet of doom here on this show, hardly at all, but there's something that really, there's not much you really can do about that if we get a big, massive X-flare or a big CME like the 1859 Carrington event, we're just a sitting duck in a, in a shooting gallery. Is, is a naturally occurring uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse, the same thing as a CME? Is a CME and an EMP, are those synonymous one with one another? Pardon my ignorance on this one, but if no, I don't no, no, know, no, I'm guessing no. the audience may not as well. No, and, and actually this is a very good question. The whole thing that precedes this, in other words, what would precede the EMP, is the causation of having the coronal mass ejection hit. So that the coronal mass ejection is so powerful, let's say, if we got a giant one like Carrington event, that would be synonymous like that of an EMP. But what people hear, and they have a good reason to be concerned about this too, and not to shift gears totally, we know that rogue nations around the world or anybody who's insane to launch a thermonuclear device into the Earth's atmosphere, and they've even done this study, And I know both of us have had this gentleman who really is the scholar on this, 
Dr. P- Peter Vincent Pry, mm-hmm. who is obviously the guy that we, we both talked to about this, and his analogy about even a small type of nuclear device detonated, let's say, let's say a diesel submarine from a rogue nation decided to launch a Scud missile that had a small nuclear weapon in it. Maybe not in megatonnage, but maybe in kiloton range, like that of a Hiroshima bomb, maybe 12 to 15 uh, kilotons. That alone, if it was injected into the Earth's atmosphere, let's say not you know, New York or any major city, off a coast, you could cause serious damage to the entire electrical grid there. But if you launched one, let's say North Korea decided to drop one from space, and allegations have been, and this is actually not totally proven, but it's pretty much uh, accurate to a degree here, that they launched a so-called satellite, the North Koreans, and somebody said, or they said, no, it was just like a concrete dummy object that they put in space. Some believe, I can't confirm it, but this is, you know, we read all different things, that if they did place a small nuclear device inside one of those satellites, you don't have to launch anything into space. You would just simply move it over the middle of the United States, like Nebraska or Kansas, and from an altitude of, let's say, space, 150 to 200 miles, that, if it had enough you know, power and oomph, couldn't actually knock out the entire grid of the United States. And what are we so dependent on? You go get gas or you see those SCADAs, those, those the microprocessors that control all this stuff. Once you pump all that stuff and blow it away, uh, it's not a good sign. So CMEs would be the precursor to an electromagnetic mm. pulse event in the atmosphere. I, I appreciate you clarifying that. Thank you. We're you talking bet. with Steve Cates. We're going to continue and take your calls in a moment. Our phone number is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. There's three open lines. Love to hear from you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart. Elvis Presley, who would have turned 88 years old this week had he still lived, uh, singing Blue Moon. We're talking with a guy that knows uh, more about the moon than anybody that I know personally. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He also has a terrific podcast called The Dr. Sky Experience, which you can check out at WABC Radio. Dot com. You can also read the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. If you have questions, you can dial in at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Paul in Massachusetts. Paul, you're on with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, good evening. I'm good a little nervous. I'm not used to speaking on the radio, but I'm a little nervous. Oh, don't be um, nervous. We're as friendly was, as can no, be. No, don't be nervous. We're friendly. <laughs> okay. I was born in the Azores, the island of Santa Maria, which is the middle of the ocean, which Beautiful. belongs to Portugal. Um, they were approved already for European Space Agency satellite to be built there. Uh, but I, it's been already set for like four or five years already, and nothing's been done yet. Do you know the status on that? I really don't, but it's one of the most beautiful places. I'd love to visit there myself, and I know the observatories that they have you know, throughout that island chain there. It's just absolutely beautiful. But like I said before, Paul, there's so many countries, so many people. I don't have an answer on that one. I mean, we could look into it. But the point of the matter is all of these locations, the closer that they are to the equator, the more likely that you'll get an extra boost, as I call it, the turbo effect, because of the Earth's rotation is a lot, a lot rapid, more rapid, I should say as you get closer to the equator than if you were to, say, launch up from the North Pole or something like that. 
But no, that's a it's a beautiful right. place, and I'm going to add it to my list of places to look at uh, to maybe mm-hmm. go and visit because that sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they said it was approved, but they said now some they said not, right. now now am I go to Norway? So I was just wondering if I guess you're not really too sure about about it. I guess right. I'm not, sir. I'm honest as always. When when we don't know, we tell the truth. And there you go. That's, that's uh, thank you, Paul. Great question. Food for thought. Ralph is in Ohio. Hello there, Ralph. Hello, uh, Dr. K. Tiger. Uh, left morning on coast, and uh, there was a guy on coast recently, a flat earther. He said if the sun yes. is eight and a half minutes away, and it's as small as it is by the time it gets to Earth, you go a little bit farther, you shouldn't be able to see the sun at all. The house come that you see like Sirius, 16 light years, uh, right. 400 light years. How can, how can we see anything? Yeah, I'm glad how Ralph can. has called, by the way, yeah, because Ralph. I yeah. have gotten increased calls from people mm-hmm. asking about this uh, this theory of a flat Earth. Even prominent people right. like Kyrie Irving have uh, you know, sure. expressed some skepticism about the spherical shape of the Earth. What do we know about this, Steve? Well, Ralph, it's a very good uh, question that you're proposing here, or, or comment, I should say. But here's one of the proofs that I look at all the time, and everybody can see, the, see that the Earth can't be flat. If you take a look at any sunset, Ralph, and that's clear sky, in other words, if you look the opposite direction where the sun set, there's a phenomenon, it's just a simple thing in beauty and in art, it's called the belt of Venus. Now, what's that? So when you look the opposite where the sun set, you just look back the opposite area, what you'll see is this pinkish band, and it's an, it's in an arc. So if the Earth were flat, there'd be no way that there could be an arc in the sky. So that's the most simplistic proof that the Earth has to have a spherical shape. And it's actually so rudimentary. I mean, we show this to kids in one of our Dr. Sky programs, and we say, and we bring that subject up because a lot of children will say, you know, I heard, Daddy, or that the, you know, that the Earth is flat. And I say, well, take a look at that. How could it be curved when you see this band that's in an arc if the Earth were flat, that's the simple answer, as even the most basic of all things. I don't know where they come up with the rest of that, uh, Frank. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. Thank you, Ralph. Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. If you want to, if you have a question for Steve Cates, eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. We're talking about uh, things not of this Earth. Moving from the Moon to Mars. Was there an earthquake detected on Mars? Absolutely, and this is amazing. If we go back and study this whole NASA InSight lander, which has been running around on the surface of Mars for a long time, we go to Dateline, May the 4th, 2022. What happened? On this particular red god of war, this particular spacecraft has a rover, I should say, has its little penetrating probe into the surface of Mars. Get a load of this it detects a level 5 on the Richter scale earthquake. Now, that's highly unusual for an object like Mars for a couple of reasons. We here on Earth, we know from basic geology, that we have the thing called plate tectonics. You know, if you take your hand and slide it over the top of your hand, looking at it in front of you, imagine these massive plates on the Earth that are constantly shifting and the continents are moving. We know that a long time ago, allegedly, the entire North American continent, Africa and, say, South America, we're all sandwiched together. Well, Mars doesn't have plate tectonics. And the other thing is Mars has, if anything, an extremely weak or non-existent uh, magnetic field. So isn't that a bizarre thing that you're seeing or feeling or experiencing this little NASA InSight rover a level five on the Richter scale? That, that's pretty noticeable. You know, I haven't been in any earthquakes, and I hope I don't you know, experience any, but for people who know, whether you were in California, along the coast, let's say, of Chile, or anywhere on the Earth where earthquakes are prominent, God help us if we were up there near Alaska, when some of the most powerful and in Chile earthquakes that registered up in the nine on the Richter scale plus. So isn't that bizarre that we find on Mars a planetary object that you would think shouldn't have them? Right. It was detected and recorded. A lot of folks rely on these segments that we do to keep an eye out for what's worth watching in the night sky the next day or two, the next week or two, the next month or so. What uh, should people be on the lookout for as they look up? Well, Frank, I hope we can spend a little time on this comet that's in the sky. And mm. I got to knock, knock, not the media, I should say it correctly, not knock the media. But unfortunately, when I say the media, I'm talking about a lot of things we read on the Internet. And I'm just so tired of reading all the time about the next big asteroid is heading toward the Earth. And we find out at the end of the article, 
Well, it's not anywhere near the Earth. It's 25 million miles away, but you had to know that it was headed toward the Earth. There's a comet in the sky. And with everything I read, and I'll be looking at this object later this week when the moon slowly go, fades away. It's been too bright. It's a comet called Comet C-22E3 with the interesting letters ZTF. What's ZTF? It was discovered back in March of 2022 by this observatory out in California, which is famous anyway, like Mount Palomar. They have this big 48-inch telescope. Imagine a mirror 48 inches, a monster telescope. And on that is a camera. Get a load of this. If you think folks out there, they have these new iPhones and these new Androids, this is a 605-megapixel camera that has a gigantic wide-field view. So it discovers this comet. And this particular comet, as we read in, in you know, articles on the Internet, it's passing close to the sun on January 12th. Hey, like a day away. A hundred million miles. Now, that's not very close for a comet to the sun. But it comes around toward the Earth on February 2nd at 26 million miles. But here's the interesting part. It hasn't been seen since Neanderthal, you know, humans allegedly and did exist way back, say, 50,000 years ago. So it hasn't been seen for 50,000 years. And I've observed comets for like 40 years. Some are bright, some are good. And it's so funny, one great comet discoverer said this, and I quote about comets, it's so interesting. He said, and I quote, comets are like cats. They do both have tails and they do precisely what they want. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting. I know it sounds hilarious, and it is so cool because when you look at comets, you're noticing a tail. Sometimes you notice a secondary tail called an anti-tail or a plasma tail, not dust, but just this gas. But this object, this is always truth here on, you know, your show, The Other Side of Midnight and everywhere else. This is not something that people are going to go out and go, oh, wow, look at the comet. It's something that you'll probably get to see in a pair of binoculars. Maybe it'll get bright enough to be seen in the darkest of locations. But see, here we go again. And I'm, you know, not knocking the comet. It's a great thing to see. But I hope everybody gets to see it. And the way to see it, as we go to our own blog here at wabcradio.com, I recommend this. And here it is, folks. The best site of all that I know the gentleman who does this. It's not my site. And I love promoting people that do great work. It's theskylive.com. And on there, you'll be able to see individual maps of how it looks in a, in a you know, pair of binoculars in the star field. It'll show you a more advanced view if you have a larger telescope, and it shows you the most incredible thing I've ever seen. The deep sky image is if you had this monster telescope, and it live tracks the object right in front of you so that if you're trying to find it, you'll know exactly where it is in the sky. But the other things, quickly, that we find out, we just had the full wolf moon. But just on now the that, comet front, uh, Steve, sure. when will the when will the comet be closest to Earth to allow the best view with uh, binoculars or a telescope? In my opinion, you'll probably get to see it during the first and second week of February. Got but it. the moon, unfortunately, is going to be bright again. So in order to see it at all, you're probably going to have to wait toward maybe say a few weeks from now, when the moon returns to new in our skies, and that occurs right around the 21st. That would be a good time to start looking at it in the morning sky. But theskylive.com will give you the exact location, the times, and it's such a cool place to go. But these are amazing. I love comets. I mean, the most amazing one, Frank, that I had ever seen here in Arizona was a comet back in 1996. And maybe some of the listeners saw it. It was a comet called Yakutake, discovered by a Japanese observer. I have never seen anything like this. The comet came within 9 million miles of the Earth. Right around the time, I think it was 1996, that the Oscars were on, sometime in March. And we didn't want to watch the Oscars. We went out to the desert, and the quick story is this. I have never seen a comet with a tail, Frank, that was over 170 degrees across the sky. It looked like you could see the nucleus. I was laying in this lawn chair, looking up at these big binoculars, and I didn't want to take my eyes off this thing. But when you turned your head in the dark sky, no moon, the tail stretched three-quarters of the way across the sky, that was incredible. I've never seen anything like that before. And what were you uh, poised to mention, what, the next uh, great viewing that we should be on the lookout for? Well, what's interesting coming up here, for those everybody looking at the different planets, we had the story come out that all major planets, you know, the Earth is obviously one, so we had seven major planets strewn across the sky. But I'm going to suggest for people to do this. Look into the southwest of your sky, if it's clear, on the evening of the 22nd of January. Brilliant Venus, which you can't miss, 
and the planet Saturn, which you can see with the naked eye, are all going to converge together by a third of a degree in the sky. And that's kind of cool because that doesn't happen that often. And then the following night on the 23rd of January, the crescent moon, Venus, and Saturn all form this beautiful circle area within an area of less than about four degrees. So that's pretty cool for those that have cameras. They want to use their phones or whatever they have to take pictures of this. This is what I call sacred geometry, the most beautiful of things out there. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. You can listen to the Dr. Sky experience as we're just whetting your appetite for some of the subjects that they cover at wabcradio.com. Steve, let me ask you about a story that uh, that I encountered yesterday and I found just fascinating. You have alluded several times in uh, the course of our conversations that the reason the Earth is getting warmer isn't necessarily due to man-made behavior. It's due to solar activity and activity, you know, on on the surface of the sun. Well, uh, you know, I've been pretty concerned about man-made activity causing climate change and things of that nature. But I was really pleased to see that a a hole in the ozone layer has been repairing itself. And within a few short decades, if all goes as it's going now, this ozone layer hole might be fully repaired and fully back to normal. Um, Tell us about this. What is the significance of this story that was that was uh, that was uh, reported yesterday? And what does it mean for the future of uh, global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it? Well, this is interesting, since the obvious truth is always this is interesting. And in my mind, we go back into the story of how the Earth's ozone layer was thought to have been destroyed some 250 million years ago possibly by supermassive volcanic activity on the Earth. But the Earth has a tendency to heal itself. And we talk about that a lot with John's show, John Katsimatidis, on Cats at Night, and we go into great detail there. But for those that haven't heard that, we find the Earth has this healing process. Now, you would imagine over 250 million years, that's enough time to hopefully heal anything. But what is this particular substance that we're talking about, ozone? It's triatomic oxygen. It's O3. And what you're talking about is actually happening. We don't know why, but this ozone hole is now kind of closing up. And ozone is so dependent, we're so dependent on this, obviously, on the Earth, because radiation from the sun in the form of this UVB, ultraviolet, deep ultraviolet radiation, is harmful to skin and to animals and things like that. And it's a real serious thing. So the bottom line is the Earth has the ability to heal itself. But interestingly enough, in the short term, we're still looking for the causation of why the ozone hole is actually shrinking Hmm. or getting close. So we're on the right track. And if humans are saying that they're doing it because they're doing everything they can to not pollute the atmosphere, that's also a good thing, obviously. But it all all talks about what happened with the Montreal Accord, where they, you know, had to ban the CFCs and try to reduce that. Maybe that's an answer, too. Who knows? Christine in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello there, Christine. You're on with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Hi, Dr. Sky. Good morning. Um, you, were, you were talking before about these solar flares. and the, Yes, Christine. Um, I'm just worried about the magnetic field. Are we in any possible danger of one of these, some of the solar activity rending it or damaging it in some way? And what would happen to us? Great question, Christine. We're really not sure what the deleterious effects or the bad effects of what that could do to the Earth. But here's an interesting story. We find out that there's a big shift going on right now in what we call the Earth's geomagnetic pole. Now, there's two poles. We see the pole at the North Pole where the axis of the Earth goes right through and it spins where that zero rotation, you know, right at that ground zero. But we find the geomagnetic pole has been moving very rapidly, and it's really strange. I I didn't realize this, and we did the research on it. The north magnetic pole is moving 500 feet per day compared to the Earth's geographic north pole. But when you get hit with these solar flares, it does have the effect on changing something on the Earth. We're not quite sure what the effects would be, but I think we have to look in the long term. Some 780,000 years ago, the Earth flipped. So let's hope that these increases in you know, magnetism and energy don't flip the Earth's magnetic pole because that would be really scary because a lot of things would change and that would take us, Frank, what, another two hours to talk that, about the details 
and we'll leave out the bad parts. Yeah, that's for sure. I I hope I've answered you. I mean, it's uh, not, let me put it this way. Nobody really knows what the true effect of these CMEs on the Earth's magnetic field would do. It's not a good thing, but we have all these different reasons that things are changing on the Earth by themselves. Excuse me, and I should actually allude to the fact or give an answer. When you look at what's happening with the wandering of the Earth's magnetic pole, it's thought that inside the Earth, since it's magnetic and, and, excuse me, it's molten, there's molten magma, like, you know, you see it coming out of a volcano in Hawaii, but even more intense. There's big bubbles, they think, or bulges in that. And it's not, it's like if you have a washing machine and you don't balance it, what happens when it's on its spin cycle? It starts going bang, 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 bang. The Earth is this fluid thing inside the Earth, which changes the core, and it's not going around in, in perfect symmetry. So let's hope everything balances out. Thank you, Christine. 833-969-4447 if you have questions. 833-969-4447. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's 2023, and in the last 10 days, I've heard a lot of talk about New Year's resolutions. I'll tell you what one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be. It's going to be to have many more conversations on the air with Steve Cates. Not only does he sound great, not only does he cover the kind of topics that you really don't hear elsewhere on the radio, but he explains what are at times very complex issues in ways that uh, even laymen like me can understand. If you want to hear more of Dr. Sky, you can check out the Dr. Sky experience at wabcradio.com. That's uh, wabcradio.com. Steve, we've uh, talked a little bit about the unified field theory. Remind folks what that is and uh, where we're going in terms of people uh, proving or disproving the validity of the unified field theory? Well, one of Einstein's lack of accomplishments, and I don't want to knock him, it's just that he never really could fulfill this one theory, as we call it, the theory of everything. What it really means is this. (laughs) We look at the four main forces in the universe, gravity, the electromagnetic force, something called the weak nuclear force, and something called the strong nuclear force. What Einstein was trying to do was to coordinate all them and synthesize them into one, one theory that works. And here's the problem. You have to unify gravity with all these other forces. But let me explain this. Electromagnetic forces, we know what that is. Electrons, you know, neutrons, things of that nature. Electricity, let's say. Gravity is the most complicated one. Astrophysicists, cosmologists, people that are studying quantum physics, they're, they're trying to understand the whole true story of gravity. The two problematic things in gravity, without going too much into detail, are the thing called dark energy and dark matter. These are subsets that we don't really quite understand gravity totally. But now, the weak nuclear force, what is it? It's about radioactive decay and how protons turn into neutrons. This is complicated. Then we have the strong nuclear force. This is the binding force that binds protons and neutrons like the sun does when it fuses things together. So Einstein had this difficulty of trying to see how we can combine gravity, special theory of relativity, put all this into one theory that we would be able to call the toe, the theory of everything. And this is one of the greatest challenges that even cosmologists, astrophysicists, quantum physicists are trying to coordinate. And it's a shame that we lost the great minds like Stephen Hawking. Obviously, you know, he, he survived. I don't know how anybody could survive in that body with such a, you know, a horrible disease like ALS, but he did. And he had so many profound theories about trying to understand this and many other state-of-the-art physicists. And I'd love to, in future programs, as you said, you'd like to have these great conversations. And I enjoy this, and I hope the listeners do, too. We're trying to understand how to put everything into one theory. Now, some people may think, well, this is not a little arrogant. 
How can humans figure out that this is going to be the way it is? There's so much, Frank, that's unexplained out there. It's just amazing. So what is it? The more we know, the less we know. But we keep pursuing this so we can know maybe where we came from. What was the concept behind this big explosion that some people say, which I like to call the big expansion? 13.77 billion years ago, something magnificent happened. Does it happen often? Does it happen in multiverses? Does it happen in, in other areas of the universe, meaning the multi-universe? And then the other concepts, which are really mind-boggling, and, hey, I try to study as much as I can, and I'm just a tiny little speck of solar driftwood trying to understand this like a lot of people, but here we go. The most amazing things to try to understand is what is consciousness? What is reality? What, what is time? You know, all these things combined into one are just so fascinating, but you know who's really given us the best answers so far? It's a device. The James Webb Telescope mm. appeared back almost to about 380,000 years after the alleged explosion. And it's revealing so many things that are just so incredible about this universe and about what's to come. It's just amazing. So, you know, and all the political stuff that we hear every day out there, and hey, you know, we have obviously problems in the country and around the world, but I don't know. I hope by our little conversations here that we're enlightening people to kind of let go of that for just a little bit while because the sun will be up tomorrow. And it all starts over again. Absolutely. During this time, we can have some fun. Absolutely. 833-969-4447. Pauline is in Queens. Hello, Pauline. Hi, Dr. Sky and uh, Frank. Good morning. Um, I have a question. Something's coming up, and I forgot all about it, but it's called sure. the Reverse Manhattan Hinge, and it's on oh. January 12th, 11th and 12th. What can you explain what that's all about? And I know that it was the uh, I forgot his name. Uh, the, the some some what is it? Uh, the, the person who runs the uh, Museum of Natural History or whatever the, the um, oh yeah, I forget what Doctor Neil, right? Doctor Neil. Yeah, no, this yeah. Manhattan Henge, this Manhattan Henge like is really funny. Control. I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. And what it is, it's the alignment along the buildings in New York City, east to west. When we get an opportunity, and forgive me, I don't know the exact dates that it happens, but probably around solstice time. When the sun is rising and yeah, but this setting. time this is a reversed one, so you got to get up. Ah, sunset. right. You got to get up uh, sunrise, like at seven o'clock right. in the morning, and there's certain streets that it, you know, the, the, the light of the sun will shine. I mean, whatever. I don't. That, really that's know. better I for me. I don't. I'll, I don't, I don't I, I'll see it when I uh, when I'm going to bed. Well, I can only tell you this: the reversed one would be obviously looking in the opposite direction of the sun. And you would be able to see through the big building chasms of New York City. You know, I'm going to do a little research on that one, Frank, because obviously I live here in Phoenix, but hey, I'm a native New Yorker too. And the truth of the matter is I've seen pictures of this where they show the sun right through the buildings of, let's say, east-west along the Manhattan caverns of buildings. But the reverse one, obviously, would be what? We're looking at the moon rising or the sun on the other side. Instead of looking west, we're looking east. But I have to check into that. But there's so many pictures out there of that, and I'd love to witness that. Maybe, Frank, we can hold a special WABC uh, gathering on a corner and do a live remote. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be. <laughs> that would, that would be certainly be fun. Uh, before I uh, let you go, speaking of items sure. on this earth rather than out there among the stars, if you were to uh, pinpoint the highest and the lowest points on this earth, where would you? What, what would they be? Well, the simple answer would be Mount Everest as far as a, ma you know, a massive mountain, some 29,000 feet above the surface of the earth, and then the Mariana Trench, which we know, like James Cameron, has gone to the bottom of the deep, about 30-plus thousand feet below. But how about this? The closest point, I mean, the part of the earth that's closest to the core of the earth, if you were to go to the North Pole, because remember, the earth is wider at the equator than it is at the pole, there's a place in the Arctic Ocean called the Little Deep, so if you stood up there, or you're on a boat, or even if you were under the ocean in a submarine, the core of the Earth is only 3,950 miles from where you're standing, obviously a lot closer than if you were doing that at the equator. And then there's another interesting factoid here. We just followed them this morning. The most distant place away from land on the entire surface of the Earth is a place called Point Nemo. And it's actually what they call a space yard, a spaceship or a spacecraft graveyard. It's way down into the South Pacific Ocean. And at that point, in the center of mass of Point Nemo, you're 1,670 miles from the nearest landmass, which is quite fascinating. And if you want to look at the last one here, the lowest underground or deepest drilling that they've ever gone into the surface of the Earth. This is interesting. 
It's called the Kola Superdeep Borehole. And that was up near Russia and Norway. They went down 7.62 miles or 40,230 feet deep. And it was actually a hole that was drilled about nine inches in diameter. And you know what? The really the backstory on that is kind of spooky. They say that they actually sealed it up and they never told us why. But imagine drilling that deep into the earth, 7.62 miles. That's the deepest. I, I, I remember that. I've researched that a bit as well. What was yeah. the reason that the Russians had, uh, had, had burrowed so deep beneath the surface of the earth? Well, a wacky theory that I read on the Internet, I don't necessarily believe it, is they actually heard voices. Now, <laughs> I don't make this stuff up. Maybe somebody else did. Right. But, I've, seen, I've seen that as well. Yeah. Well, they also said on a serious note that the reason they didn't continue to drill is that they actually punched through something that was very soft instead of rock, and they figured there was no way for the drill to get any deeper because they might have even gone into some of the magma of the earth. Who knows? But that's interesting. Imagine a hole 7.62 miles down. No, thank you. I'm claustrophobic. Yeah, I hear you. But what were they hoping to gain by going 7.62 miles? Not down? sure. I mean, I don't know if that was just a thing for thrills to say how deep we could go and uh-huh. test out our best drill bits. But the reality of the situation is, yeah, that, that's a strange one. But somebody claims that there's actually a deeper one, that in Qatar, there was an oil well that went down 40,318 feet. Not a home stretch beyond that, yeah. but uh, interesting. Steve, so it, we're just full of good good stuff here. It is always a treat to talk with you. I want to encourage everybody to check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com and especially the Dr. Sky experience at wabcradio.com. Why don't we do this again in a couple of weeks, Steve? Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, Frank, and good morning and Happy New Year. Absolutely. Until then, uh, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.